good morning and Merry Christmas. Today we are gathered to celebrate the birth of Jesus. We've been singing songs that proclaim the glory of the Lord. We've been hearing from the stories in the Bible that tell us of how Jesus came to earth as a baby. Christ the Lord, sent to save us from our sins. It is a wonderful, extraordinary, and miraculous event in which God, God himself, comes to dwell among his people, born as a baby in Bethlehem. This morning, we're going to be considering Luke chapter 2. We read from it just a few moments ago. And in those verses, we're told that after the baby Jesus is born, the heavens cannot contain themselves, that the glory of the Lord breaks through into this world and the host of heaven sing glory, glory, glory to God in the highest. Friends, the message of the birth of Jesus is full of the glory of God. And one of the most amazing things to me about this amazing glory is right smack dab in the middle of it is something relatively ordinary. The birth of a baby. In fact, the story in Luke chapter 2, when you read about the birth of Jesus there aren't really all that many things that distinguish it from every other birth that's ever happened in the history of the world. I mean, this baby was born in the middle of nowhere, on a dirt floor with his family around, to parents who weren't really all that important in the first place. And so because of that, this birth is just like everything else. It's a wonderful gift from God. It shouldn't be taken for granted, but it's relatively ordinary. And so to me... The interesting thing about this passage is the telling of the birth of Jesus brings together the incredible glory of God brought to us through the relatively ordinary means of creation. And so today, as we consider this passage and what it means for us, that's what I want to do. I want to understand how does God's glory and the ordinariness of the birth of Jesus, how do they fit together? How are we meant to understand them and to rejoice in those two truths as they come together? Now, Um, We've been reading this morning from Luke chapter 2. And it starts off with a bit of anticipation. Remember that God has been silent for hundreds of years. His people have been waiting for a Savior with no word from a prophet. And in Luke chapter 1, he breaks that silence. We read from it a moment ago. An angel comes to Mary and says, you are going to conceive a child through the Holy Spirit and he will save his people from their sins. And later in chapter one, Zechariah, a priest, is filled with the Holy Spirit and makes a prophecy that says God is coming to visit and redeem his people to bring them peace. And so we pick up in chapter two and something big is about to happen. In fact, when we read these first few verses, they might seem just like setting the stage, but rather, when we see that Mary and Joseph are going to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, we're now primed to realize, oh, I'm supposed to remember that that is another fulfillment of a prophecy. We remember that God told us that from Bethlehem shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. In other words, Jesus is the king that God has promised to send. And when this king is born, 
the announcement rings forth throughout all of eternity. The heavens break through into the sky. The host of heaven proclaim glory, glory, glory to God in the highest and peace among those with whom he is pleased. What must that have been like? I really think the only word that can describe it is unimaginable. I do think it's just beyond our ability to really grasp what it would have been like to see the glory of God in its fullness and the angels proclaiming that glory. You see how the shepherds responded. They fell down. It took their breath away in awe and fear. But one thing, for as however hard it is to understand what the glory of God was like, one thing is really clear. When this baby was born, in this time, and this place, it was glorious. Now, before we go any further, I want to take a pause and try my very best to define glory for you. It is, by definition, undefinable. So I'm going to do what I think will be a poor job at it, but I'm going to try. When you um, read theologians who try to explain what the glory of God is, usually they take like 20 or 30 pages to try and explain this one idea. And you can tell they're just sort of grasping for words to get their mind around this incredible concept. At best, it's 50 or 100 words to define one. Um, The best one that I came across, or at least the shortest, um, is by a Christian author named Paul Tripp. He writes that glory isn't so much a thing as it is a description of a thing. Glory isn't a part of God, it's all that God is. Every aspect of who God is and every part of what God does is glorious. The doctrine of God's glory encompasses the greatness and the beauty and the perfection of all that he is. I feel like those words fall a little bit short to my ears because I don't really take my breath away like the shepherds must have. And so there are times in this life when we experience a little bit of God's glory, maybe in the beauty of his creation or a wonderful piece of music or a fine meal. But all of those wonderful and beautiful and breathtaking experiences are just shadows of the glory of God. There are passages in the Bible that help us understand more clearly what the glory of God is, images of light and beauty and righteousness and justice and wholeness. But for however hard it is for our minds to fully expand, to grasp the notion of the glory of God, one thing is very clear in this passage. That in the birth of Jesus, we see the greatness and the beauty and the perfection of all that God is. In the birth of Jesus, we see glory. And in that fact, it brings us to one simple truth, that we should worship this child who was born a king because in him is the beauty and the glory and the perfection of God, and that brings us to worship him, even if we can't get our minds around all of the ways in which it was glorious. But I think there's another reason that this glory is so important to us as Christians. It serves as an incredibly foundational fact that drives all of our faith. It shapes the way that we understand all of the Bible. And that's this. If the birth of Jesus is truly the embodiment of the glory of God, 
then everything else in the Bible has to be true. Because of the fullness of God's greatness and beauty and perfection became a human, then everything else that happened was kind of easy. If the God of glory and truth really became a human, then of course that human could do miracles. If the God of glory and of truth became a human, then of course he raised people from the dead. Of course he lived a perfect life. If all of the perfection and beauty and righteousness and truth of God came to dwell in a human, then death could never hold him. Of course he's alive today. Of course he's seated at the right hand of God. In Jesus is the glory of God. And it causes us to worship. I think it is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from all of the other world religions. That we believe in this child born 2,000 years ago on a dirt floor in the middle of nowhere came to dwell the fullness of the glory of God. And to him we owe our allegiance and our worship. The birth of Jesus was glorious. But like we said before, one of the most interesting things to me about this passage is right smack dab in the middle of the angels singing is this relatively ordinary birth. It comes, it's told in verses 6 and 7 of Luke chapter 2. It says, And while they were there, the, ta- the time came for her to give birth, meaning Mary. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Strikes me as relatively unassuming. If we didn't have verses 8 through the end of the chapter, we wouldn't have known there was anything different about that birth. Now, I think sometimes when we hear this story, our minds are uh, drawn or our imaginations captured by the Hollywood rendition of a husband knocking frantically on a door trying to find a place for his wife who is in labor. But I think as you can see, that, that kind of urgency or hysteria isn't really borne out in the text. In fact, the word for in here actually doesn't mean hotel. It's not some kind of place that you go and pay for a place to stay. The word for in here was a part of a house in ancient Israel. It's maybe better translated guest room. In ancient Israel, houses would have had three rooms. They would have had the main room where the family stayed. In that room, there would have been holes in the ground with some stones in them where hay was for animals to eat. They would have called that a manger. Just off to the side of the house, there was the inn or the guest room. And then on the other side of the house, there was a place where the animals came in from the cold and the weather when they needed to. And so when we're told here that Jesus came to, to um, Bethlehem and there was no room for him in the inn, that doesn't mean there was no place for him to stay. That means when he went to the family's house that we're supposed to be putting them up, the guest room was already full. So they let him stay in the main part of the house where the animals ate. Now, the reason I mention that is not to make you wonder if all of your nativity sets are correct. But if you come away from Luke chapter 2 thinking, oh, there was no room for him in the inn, I think you've missed the point. I don't think we're supposed to see some sort of extraordinarily inhospitable moment that happens here. I think we're just supposed to see an ordinary birth that happened on a dirt floor in the middle of ancient Israel where there were animals and family. 
And that is remarkably normal. It's also remarkably good news for us because it means that we can approach this God who has come to earth. Jesus wasn't born in riches or wealth. He was born in poverty. He wasn't born into a family of particular fame or political importance. He was born into a family in the margins of society. Because of that, he was born for all of us. Now, we have seen what it is like for a king to be born in our lifetimes. Not too long ago, uh, the heir to the throne of England was born. And people tuned in from all over the world to watch this baby come out of the hospital. It was a wonderful celebration. But there was no way you were getting close to that baby. I mean, streets were shut down. The whole hospital wing was evacuated. The palace was shut down. Kings are meant to be celebrated. They are not meant to be known. You can't get close to a king. And so we give thanks that that isn't what happened when the king of the universe came to earth. We give thanks that Jesus wasn't born in Buckingham Palace or the Taj Mahal or the palaces of Caesar. We give thanks that Jesus was born in a little tiny house on a dirt floor because that means that we can come to approach him. And in fact, the most poignant and beautiful example of that is the shepherds here. The angels, when they proclaim the glory of the birth of Jesus, they come to shepherds. These shepherds were nobody. They weren't important. They were the bottom rung of society. They were filthy. And the angels say to them, to you this day is born a savior. And there's something that's true about the angels saying, to you, broadly, humanity for all of history. That's true. But the angels are also saying, to you, shepherd, to you, lowest of the low, is born this day a savior. Come, see him. You're going to go find him just a town over. He's going to be lying in a manger like every other baby you found, and he's going to be in clothes. And you're going to come and worship him. And they go. And I think the implication is that we can extend that same invitation to come and worship the baby Jesus, to come and worship the Lord made man. You are not too broken to come worship at the feet of Jesus. You are not too poor. You are not too dirty. You are not too alone. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself unworthy to come and worship at the feet of our Lord. He comes to earth as a child for the lowest of the low. And we give thanks for that because all of us need that. Now, there is another layer to this ordinariness that I would like to peel back for us this morning. Because in the way that I've been talking about it, it might seem like the glory of God is set up in contrast to the ordinariness of the birth of Jesus. But the reality is, 
that it's in the ordinariness of it that God's glory is magnified. After Jesus was born, the angel makes a proclamation. He says, come and worship. You have been given a savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, I don't want to miss that verse because I think it might actually be the whole point of the entire Bible. That Jesus has come to save his people in the person of Jesus. But the thing that they are worshiping Jesus for here, the thing that the angels can't hold back, is the proclamation that he is the Savior. Now, we know what that means. We know that they were worshiping Jesus because he had come with one purpose in mind. Jesus had come to earth to die. And so when they are worshiping Jesus in this moment as the Savior, they are worshiping him for putting aside his glory, for taking on the form of a human child, not only that, a relatively ordinary one. And they are worshiping Jesus for making himself small enough to be killable. And so it's in that humiliation of taking on humanity that we see the glory of God most greatly magnified. Philippians 2 says this, that though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that humility, because he laid aside his glory to take the cross, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus set aside the glory that he had known with his Father for eternity when he became a human. And it is that very humility that he comes to save us in that magnifies the glory of God. And not only that, because he comes as the humblest of people, because he comes in an ordinary way, we can come to him. Now, as we close today, there's just one more thing that I'd like to consider, which is, why would he do this? Why would the God of the universe, who has been experiencing the glory of God for all of eternity, lay aside his glory for us? Well, it's certainly because he loved us. But he had a purpose in mind. Hebrews 2 tells us that when Jesus was made lower than the angels for a little while, he did that in order to bring many sons to glory. In other words, Jesus set aside his glory so that we might experience the glory that he had known from all of eternity. Friends, a stark reality is that apart from Jesus, all of us prefer our own glory. Apart from him, we like to think highly of ourselves. 
We like to be the center of attention. We like to take credit for things that only God could do. We like to be in charge. We don't like giving glory or honor to other people, least of all God. And Jesus set aside his glory in order to fix that. One of the most um, famous essays on glory written by C.S. Lewis gives us a spectacular image here that I think is so helpful. Lewis calls us to consider a child sitting on the side of a dirty pond making a mud pie. And that that child looks at that mud pie full of worms and thinks there is nothing more glorious than I could ever be doing. Now, lest we sit in judgment of that child, I know a few children in this room who would think the same thing, uh, perhaps some in my own family, that there's just nothing more glorious than that. But the reality is that we know that that child doesn't know any better, that they've never experienced the beauty of a fine meal in one of the best restaurants in New York or Paris. And that compared to that meal, the worms and the mud and the dirt are nothing. What Jesus comes to tell us is that the glory we choose for ourselves is just like that mud pie. It's not glorious at all. What Jesus comes to do is show us that we can have a glory that is so much greater. That we can have a glory of being with God. Remember, at the beginning of our time this morning, we talked about what that experience would have been like for the heavens to open up and to proclaim the glory of the Lord. And while that is a relatively unusual thing to happen in this world, it's going to be normal in heaven. It's going to be the only thing that happens in heaven. Because what Jesus came to do was to bring us to that glory of heaven so that we will be with God. And there will be no more sadness and there will be no more tears and there will be righteousness and goodness and perfection and beauty from now until forever. The grace of our Lord Jesus is this. That though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So that through his poverty we might become rich. And in that, we join with the angels and sing glory, glory, glory to God in the highest. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, what grace is this that we might know your glory? That we who are so stubbornly self-centered might be recipients of the grace and mercy that you have shown to us. It is too much for our minds to comprehend, too much for our minds to consider your glory. But we thank you that you have sent your son Jesus to show us that glory. We thank you that he is the radiance of the glory of God. And I pray that as we think on your glory, that our hearts would grow with love and affection for you, our Father in heaven. I pray that as we wait to see your glory in all of its fullness, that we would have the faith and confidence to reject the glory that this world promises apart from you. That we would have the faith and confidence 
to bear the same humiliation that Jesus did, knowing the hope of the future glory that will be ours in heaven through him. I pray that nothing would hold us back from approaching your throne of grace. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.